Parent Show, sponsored by Raiden Solicitors, award-winning specialist family lawyers. See RaidenSolicitors.co.uk. Hello and welcome to The Parents Show on Radio Verulam 92.6 FM. I'm Lydia L. Khoury. And as part of our month-long uh, deep dive into ADHD and ADD, I am really, really delighted to welcome our guest on the show this evening. And it's Dr. Abby Russell, who will be joining us in just a second. Uh, Dr. Abby Russell is a psychologist who specializes in child and adolescent mental health and neurodevelopment, and she works at the University of Exeter Medical School. There she teaches university students one day a week and conducts research in uh, the rest of her time. Abby's research includes understanding environmental and genetic causes of mental health problems and how we can help schools to support young people with mental health or neurodevelopment difficulties. So she's spending most of her time at the moment developing a toolkit for school staff to support children with ADHD. And it's soon to be tested in eight primary schools with about 30 children with the traits of ADHD. So we're in extremely good hands. And I'd love to extend a really, really warm welcome to Dr. Abby Russell. Thanks for joining us on The Parents Show. Thanks, Lydia. It's great to be here today. So we can ask you all those questions we want to know about ADHD and ADD. And and this show, we're, we're focusing on ADHD and ADD this month because it affects everybody, whether your child has the condition or not. Um, we all have friends who have children or indeed friends who have it. And so I think it's so important for all of us to get our head around it and see what we as fellow parents and carers can do um, to support um, everybody in our community. So right down to the, just to the basics, can you tell us about the conditions ADHD and ADD? Yeah, so I think one of the most important things to say right at the start is that ADHD and ADD are basically descriptions of when you're kind of you've got an unlucky combination of personality traits. Um, so it stands for attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder. And the difference between ADD and ADHD is just that hyperactivity bit. Um, so if you imagine everyone has like a level of how impulsive they are, right? Some people like to take risks everyone's got a level of how active they are or how hyperactive or how slow moving they are. And everyone's got differences in how well they can pay attention to things. And ADHD is something that we diagnose when you have, like I say, the unlucky combination of those kind of personality traits causing difficulties for you in terms of your daily life and how you kind of go about things. So in children, that's mostly at school, right? So, um, children might get diagnosed with ADHD if they have problems with hyperactivity or they're impulsive or they can't pay attention both at school and at home and anywhere else they might be. So shall I tell you a bit about kind of why why it's got a label and why it's worth diagnosing? That would absolutely be be great to hear it and thank you so much for that introduction to it it's so lovely and simple and I get I get it you know it's it's lovely and, and very accessible for us brilliant um so I think 
Sometimes when I explain this, I like to think about physical health conditions because a lot of us are a lot more familiar with kind of physical illnesses. So if you imagine you go to your doctor and they measure your blood pressure and they say, you've got high blood pressure, so you need medication. It doesn't mean that there's some kind of magical moment when your blood pressure goes from normal to high. It means that doctors have got together and decided if your blood pressure is over this value, it's probably worth doing something to help. And it's similar with ADHD. It's not something that you necessarily just have or don't have. But when your symptoms or your personality traits start to cause you problems in how you go about your life, um, then it's something we consider worth diagnosing. And a lot of that kind of diagnosis process is about understanding you better so understanding your child better um, but also about kind of is there anything we can do through our medical and social and education systems to support the child or yourself better um, yeah so really when you just kind of cross cross a threshold and, and it impacts on your life then it's worth looking at and and getting to the root of the of the problem yeah exactly so um I mentioned those three different clusters, so the attention, the hyperactivity, and the impulsivity. And there are these lists of kind of problems or symptoms that you might have in those areas. And someone needs to have at least six of those symptoms um, to qualify for a diagnosis. And there's different subtypes as well. So if you only have problems with inattention, then you're more kind of ADD or what we now call the inattentive subtype. But if you've got problems with all of those areas, then you're the combined subtype. And you can imagine there's quite a big difference between someone who has six problems with attention and someone who has 18 problems with all of those things. So there's a lot of variability in individual people as well as in kind of the, the types of people that might get a diagnosis. So, so effectively, when you're diagnosed, it's how many traits in the three areas or how many, how many symptoms, I beg your pardon, in the three areas you have and the more symptoms you have, the more likely you are to need some kind of support to, to address it. Yeah, exactly. So it is that count of symptoms and I call them symptoms and traits interchangeably because I think with symptoms you're implying there's something wrong with someone. Yeah. But people with ADHD are just normal people. They just have different personality traits or different kind of brain development patterns. Um, so we look at those things, but we also look at what problems it's causing. Is it impairing? So if you work in an area or if you're at a school that's really flexible and adaptive, it might not actually cause you any problems. And then we wouldn't diagnose it. Um, and then the third thing we look at, like I said, is whether those things happen in different settings. So because ADHD is a brain based disorder or difference, you kind of want to think about, OK, is this causing me impairment and does it happen everywhere? So that's what we look at. So I have a couple of questions on the back of that. So the first thing is, what kind of symptoms or traits are we are we talking about? And is it worth a parent who suspects their child might have ADHD or ADD going and having a look at the, the symptoms and Obviously, nobody should be self-diagnosing anything, but just to think, ah, well, actually, I am seeing a few of those traits or symptoms. Yeah, so we have a lot of different kind of checklists and questionnaires. 
Um, the two main medical systems that this comes from and psychiatric systems, you have the American version, which is called the DSM, and that has a list of those um, different symptoms or traits. And then the European version is the ICD, which stands for the International Classification of Diseases. And what that manual has is every kind of physical and mental health condition you can think of, all documented in terms of how you would diagnose it and also how you might treat it. So you can do a bit of delving on the internet um, to find those questionnaires. There's one that I quite like to use for ADHD, and it's called the Strengths and Weaknesses of ADHD and Normal Behaviour. So it's the SWAN for short. And I like it because it doesn't just assume that things are a problem. It actually thinks about what are the positives or what are the strengths of this person as well. Great. Um, so that that's a good one for parents to refer to. So the other question I wanted to ask you is, so if you're if you're seeing some symptoms and you have an inkling or in fact, if your school is contacted, you just say maybe an assessment is needed. Well, how does the process even begin? That's a great question. And I've also forgotten to answer your last one about what what are these symptoms? What does it look oh, like? Oh, yes. I'd look attentive. So um, I'll just touch on that first, shall I? Yeah. Yes, please. So you're kind of if you're thinking about children with ADHD, if, if a child is very hyperactive, they're a bit like Tigger from Winnie the Pooh in that they just can't sit down or they're always fiddling with things. Something that I see quite a lot um, in the people that I work with is you might be constantly kind of fiddling with your hands and tearing little pieces of paper up, or maybe you have a blob of blue tack that you just can't stop playing with. Um, so the kind of movement and overactivity is the hyperactivity part. The impulsivity part is when you can't stop your yourself from doing something without thinking about it first. So children who are very impulsive might... They might know about road safety and know the rules of road safety, but when they're actually out playing with their friends and they're on a pavement, they might not think before running into the road. Um, so being impulsive is about kind of missing that, let's stop for a minute and think. And that can be really hard to judge, especially in young children when you haven't really learned those skills anyway. Yeah. Um, so we normally compare children to kind of other children of the same age and what they do relative to the child that you're interested in and then the attention part is about you know can you pay attention can you stay focused or do you get really easily distracted um, and what you might notice is either kind of children who just can't sit and finish something because they get distracted and then they're off doing something else or it might be much less noticeable than that. So it might be that their attention wanders, but if they're not hyperactive, they might stay sat quietly, but they'll actually be daydreaming or looking out a window or just generally not doing what you want them to be doing at the time. Yeah. Um, one thing that comes up a lot is uh, people say to me, oh, but they can play their video game for four hours. So I don't understand why they have ADHD or why they can't do their schoolwork. And there's some real differences. And, you know, video games are, are made to kind of stimulate constantly and be constantly changing and keep you engaged. So it's very usual to see a child who has ADHD who can also pay attention if it's something like a video game where it's constantly exciting. Um, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, I, 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 I think it really helps to know that there are, are, are exceptions and that focus can 
can take place and a child still can have a, a deficit in in attention. Um, I would love, can I, can I just park the question about what to do and just because I'd be really interested to hear your your take on the difference between how this presents itself in boys and girls. Is it the same? Can you compare boys and girls? And then we'll come back to what we should do. Yeah, I mean, it's such a good question and it comes up a lot because people listening to this show might know a bit more about autism than they do about ADHD. And autism is something that you think of kind of stereotypically. It happens to boys. And what we're seeing in the media at the moment is more and more awareness of autism in women and girls. But the fact is that they don't get recognized as having problems until they're older, um, in the case of autism, that is. ADHD is very similar. And actually, some of those kind of difficult traits overlap. And lots of people with ADHD might also have autistic traits. But traditionally, it was first recognized in boys. Um, So that our kind of early psychiatric studies from the 1900s to the 1960s often were only done in groups of boys. So the initial understanding of what ADHD is and conceptualizing it as a psychological or a psychiatric problem, that was all based on research with boys. So then it's really hard to know, does it apply to girls equally? What's going on? Why did they only look at boys to start with? And my feeling is that it does affect girls as well, but not as many as it does boys. So there is a difference in the the number of children overall who would meet the diagnostic criteria for ADHD. And one thing that people fairly commonly think is that girls are less likely to be recognized as having ADHD. So they might have the same behaviors as boys do or the same symptoms, but actually they're much less likely to get a referral or a diagnosis and they're also less likely to get um, medication treatment options so that's something that I looked at in my research group a few years ago and we could see that kind of girls and boys with high the same levels of ADHD symptoms boys were much more likely to have a diagnosis and to be treated with medication than girls so there's a bit of an issue there where we're just not recognizing it in girls and I think We don't know for sure that it is actually different in girls, but what we do know for sure is that the symptoms definitely describe boys. Right. Is it is it because it's not as pronounced in girls? Is that a possibility? I think that can play into it, um, but I think it's more to do with kind of gender stereotypes and perceptions of young children. So let me just gather my thoughts because we're doing work on this at the moment actually and looking at gender differences internationally around ADHD because we think that culture has something to do with it Um, but boys are traditionally kind of recognized as being what we call externalizing so lots of outward facing behavior they're very hyperactive they're noisy they're disruptive and you don't think the same way about young girls. And part of that is because of the culture we're brought up in and the stereotypes we have around, you know, girls sit quietly and play with their dolls and boys go and run around and smash into each other, yeah. which isn't, I, just saying, it's not true. I don't think every girl does behave like that or every boy does. But that affects how we see their behavior. And the diagnosis of ADHD is based on other people's perceptions of the symptoms the child is experiencing. So parents get asked about their perceptions, teachers get asked about their perceptions, 
And then the clinician or the doctor that you see will also have their perceptions. So if all of them are less likely to notice when a girl is hyperactive, then they won't say that she's got the symptom, even if she does. So it's about recognizing and really thinking about the behavior you're seeing in front of you, rather than the gender of the child. That's so incredibly helpful. And it, it, it that arms parents of girls with with extra awareness for you know, for any decision they make about a di- about a diagnosis. Um I might come back to boys and girls later. Um so um so so the question I was asking was how so if you have an inkling that your daughter or son might show some of these traits or symptoms, what's the first step? Yeah, so quite often this inkling comes about during primary school. Um and it might be if you've got a young child and they don't spend a lot of time with large groups of other children, you might not notice that they seem a bit different. And then what happens when you go to primary school is you see that there's a 100 other children and your child is the one doing zoomies in the corner while everyone else is sat down quietly. And that's why it tends to get noticed at that age, although it is something that affects people from birth. Um, So if you do notice or if your school or your child's school kind of points out that they think there's something going on, Normally, people don't know what it is to start with. So because we know more about autism and it's more talked about, that might be something that's suggested. But no matter what the suggestion is, um, if you think that something might be worth following up and understanding more and having a diagnosis of, and sometimes it's not, I'm happy to talk about that as well. But if it is something you want to pursue, you should go to your GP and you should ask them to refer your child either to child and adolescent mental health services or to a paediatrician. So in the UK, the only people who are kind of qualified to diagnose and manage ADHD are those two groups. Um, So either kind of a psychiatrist or psychologist who work in CAMS um, or a paediatrician who might work in a hospital setting. So what happens then? Shall I carry on? Yes, please. (laughs) So what happens then? So Your GP might not be convinced. That's quite common. And we are also working in our research team on kind of what what training GPs get around neurodevelopment. Um, But you can look at these questionnaires, like I've mentioned online, and if you think that they're showing symptoms, and especially if you can get the school to back you up, then do push to be referred. What happens then The reality at the moment is that there's very long waiting lists. Um, So I heard recently of a place that had a two-year waiting list. So once your GP sends your letter onto Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services, it might be a long time before you hear from them. So that's why, you know, pursuing a diagnosis is important. But in the meantime, you still have to live your life and support your child. Um, But when you get through that waiting list, what they'll do is probably call you in for a meeting and and give you a lot of questionnaires to work out might it be ADHD might it be autism in girls sometimes what we see is more kind of depression and anxiety but actually underlying that is ADHD and they'll get you to fill in the questionnaires normally they post them to the school as well so that they can check that kind of does it happen everywhere aspect of it And then they'll get together in a team and decide, does this child meet the criteria for a diagnosis? And if they do, there's different levels of severity of ADHD, kind of like I was describing earlier, where if you just have a few symptoms and you just meet that criteria for diagnosis, or 
yes, it causes you problems, but you're still managing okay in life, you'll probably be recommended to have kind of parent training about ADHD and to do behavior management at school and home. But if it's more severe, they might recommend that you have medication or the child takes medication for their ADHD. Um, so that's quite different. In America, normally medication is the first thing they do after diagnosis, whereas in the UK, the guidance is that unless ADHD is severe, first of all, you should try and adapt around the child before you treat the child with medication. Fantastic. That's now really, really helpful. And, and it gives a lot of clarity to parents on, on what the next step is. So I think this would be a perfect, perfect point to take a little break and uh, and come back and if you don't mind we've got plenty more questions for you Abby to ask you in the second half of the show. Brilliant. Welcome back to the Parents Show on Radio Verulam 92.6 FM. I'm Lydia Elkoury. So we're delighted to be speaking to Dr. Abby Russell, who is a psychologist specialist in child and adolescent mental health and neurodevelopment at the University of Exeter Medical School. So Abby, thanks a million for, for, for joining us on the Parents Show this evening. We've heard some incredibly valuable descriptions of ADHD and ADD in the in the first half of the show um so what I wanted to ask you was about age as the next question um is there is there an age when you can start diagnosing is there a ceiling um how 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 important of a role does it play thanks Lydia and it's great to be back um so age Age is really important when it comes to ADHD, because what you're doing is you're comparing, does this person have a similar set of behaviors to someone else of the same age without ADHD? That's part of how you diagnose it. Now, thinking back kind of 15 years or so, to diagnose ADHD, there had to be symptoms and it had to be present before the age of seven. So you could have a diagnosis later on, but they would be asking your parents and your school about what was your behavior like before seven. But actually that changed in about 2013 and they lifted the age limit to 12. So now to have a diagnosis of ADHD, you have to have some of those personality traits or symptoms causing you problems before the age of 12. And now the reason for that is a bit complicated, but originally we thought, ADHD was kind of a development delay in the brain. So these children with ADHD, their brains were developing a little bit more slowly than their other peers kind of the same age, but that that caught up over time and kind of by teenage years and adult life, nobody had ADHD. We know now that that's not true at all. And actually about two thirds of children with ADHD will carry on having those kind of traits and impairments into adulthood. So in the last kind of 10 years or so, we've been diagnosing adults with ADHD, which was something we never did before. So I think lots of people see now kind of adult women coming forward and saying, oh, I didn't realize I had this and I've just got a diagnosis now. And that's because we didn't used to diagnose adults because we didn't think it existed in adulthood. But yes, we now know that it does. And if you um, listen to the first part of this show, you can kind of see why, because if they're personality traits, why would they change when you grow up, right? You're not that different as a grown up as to a child. So, yeah. It makes sense for sure. 
And and is there a benefit as a as an adult to getting a diagnosis? Or is it similar to with a child? If it's actually having an impact on your life, then it is then it is worth looking at. Yeah, I mean, the idea of diagnosing things that are based on kind of your personality or things that you can't control about your brain and how it's developed is quite controversial. Um, and I think there are pros and cons to pursuing a diagnosis. And I could talk about that for probably weeks, so I won't today. Um, but what I will say is that if you have problems that are causing you impairment, then it is worth pursuing. So there are a couple of reasons for that. Um, adults with ADHD find it quite hard to hold down a job. So they might have been fired from all these different companies, and then they can't get a job because no one will hire them. And if they understand that they have ADHD and if they can show that to their employers, it is counted as a disability and it gives you the kind of equality um, and rights protection that you deserve. And the other thing is that it can be hard as an adult if you're quite impulsive to know what's going on or to know why. So adults with ADHD are more at risk of getting into car accidents or having broken bones, similarly to children with ADHD. And actually understanding why that is, is important. Um, and the third reason is that some people with ADHD have really severe impairments and they might have a low IQ, they might have something like cerebral palsy, they might have autism. And actually, for those people who aren't able to kind of look after themselves or live independently, or hold down a job, the kind of financial support that goes with that diagnosis and the recognition of the disability it can cause is really crucial. Yeah, of course. And that's a, a really good point to make. The, the reason why I was asking about adults is partially because um, if you're a parent or a carer of a, of a child with ADHD and you yourself have undiagnosed ADHD, I guess it's pretty valuable to know that, to know yourself as well, so you can help your child better. It, it, and and the, where I'm going with that is, is it genetic? Is ADHD and ADD genetic? Yeah, um, so great question. And it is. So it's not clearly genetic, like like how we understand the causes of Down syndrome, where you have an extra chromosome, and that's really clear. You either have it or you don't. The reason that we know that ADHD is genetic is because identical twins compared with non-identical twins are more likely to have ADHD if, if their twin has it. So we know that there's something about if you have the same genes as your twin and your twin has ADHD, you're also likely to have it. So we call those kind of twin studies. Um, but as we get more advanced with our scientific methods, we now actually look at kind of really breaking down people's genetics and understanding exactly where it is on which chromosome people are different if they have ADHD compared with people who don't. And those studies show that it, it's really complicated how it's inherited. It's not just you've got one extra thing of these or you're missing that. There's probably thousands or tens of thousands of genetic variants that could contribute to you having it. But when you bring it back to kind of an individual family, what it means is that if your child has ADHD, it's probably because you have similar personality traits. And you might be able to think back through your family history. I have a friend who can do this with kind of the men in her family, and she, she can recognize that actually those personality traits have been present across generations. And it can make it really hard if you're a parent who has ADHD 
trying to support your child at school because the school doesn't necessarily recognize that the reason home life is a bit chaotic is because you also have ADHD. They might just see that home life is chaotic and blame the parent. So understanding that it is heritable and that there are these traits that go across generations is is quite important. Thanks, Abby. Um, I want to come back to we, we, we've touched on and talked about the severity and when you cross the threshold into needing medication. Um, I, I'd love you to talk to us a little bit about about medication, because it's it's one of those it, it's a very sensitive topic, isn't it? I'm sure there are people who will never contemplate it. Others who will take it if it's recommended. I, I'd love to know what you think. Yeah, so. Medication is a very controversial topic, and I'm not a psychiatrist, so I'm not a person who's qualified to prescribe medication, um, which I think is important to know to understand my perspective. But we've known since the 1920s that stimulant medications can definitely help with kind of hyperactivity and attention and impulsivity in the very short term. So if you know someone who has medication for ADHD, it's something that they take that day and it works for that day or sometimes even only for a few hours and then the effects wear off. So it's a very kind of short acting solution. But what it does is it just gives people with ADHD a bit of an edge so that they can focus better and they can learn better. So when we research kind of non-pharmacological treatments for ADHD, you quite often see that if children also have medication, they're able to learn those strategies in the non-medication treatments a bit better. Um, I do think it's very much a personal decision for a family and for a child. Um, And it might well be that it's something that you try and it doesn't work out or that you just choose not to try. Um, And I think because the effects are so short acting that actually it's okay to give it a try and see how it goes um, because it's not going to have any lasting effect. The next day, literally, the child will be back to their normal self. Um, so, yeah, I also, <laughs> I'm just trying to kind of put together my other thoughts about medication. Um, I did mention stimulants, and I think yeah. that's something people think is really scary about ADHD medication because there are recreational drugs that are also stimulants, and they're worried that that will lead to their child using drugs or that these drugs are really affecting their brains and we don't know how. And those are valid. Um, But we do also have treatments that aren't stimulant-based drugs now. So there are other options if you want to try a medical drug treatment, but you definitely don't want stimulants. But what I would say is do some research and read around it online because actually it sounds like they're scary. But the reality is I've worked... um, in a school for children with very severe special needs, including ADHD. And for some children, these can really transform their lives and allow them to, you know, make friends and make progress in school that they just wouldn't be able to do otherwise. And I guess um, if your child is being prescribed um, medication, there there are strong indications that it, it will help. So it's worth investigating. Yes. So it's not something we do lightly in the UK. um, And it can only be prescribed to start with by those same people who can diagnose ADHD. So only a psychiatrist or a paediatrician or another person in child and adolescent mental health services can prescribe it. 
They're also considered controlled drugs because people do sometimes use them or abuse them recreationally. So you're only ever able to get like a week's amount at any one time so that you don't end up with kind of a stash pile of ADHD medication in your cupboard or anything like that. So they're very heavily controlled and that should reassure people that actually we're not handing them out like sweets to anyone that comes in. They're for people who have really severe problems and need some help. That's very reassuring. Thanks. Thanks, Abby. And I, I think I think with ADHD and ADD, there, I mean, there's a lot there's a lot of emotions attached to it. And I think when parents find out that their child um, has it and has a diagnosis, I think their first concern is, will this inf- impact on their future? Can they lead happy, successful lives um, hand in hand with ADHD or ADD? And I know it seems like a bit of a trite question, but I think it's probably the biggest concern. And I'd love to know what you think. Um So the simplest answer is yes, I think people with ADHD can lead happy and successful lives. I think especially when they grow up in an environment that understands that they need a bit of flexibility around them so that they can kind of reach their potential. The emotional stuff, I mean, it's it's so hard for parents of children with ADHD because their child might not be invited to parties when all the other children in the class are, or other parents might blame them for incidents at school, not understanding that actually the child can't control their behaviour. And then they worry about what's going to happen. Will they ever be able to live independently as they grow older? Um And what we're seeing now, and this kind of ties back to the fact that we didn't really recognize ADHD in adults, but we're starting to see now some real kind of famous role models emerging. So Michael Phelps, the swimmer, has ADHD. Um, I've seen some suggestions that Will Smith also has ADHD. Um, And yeah, so you've got some high profile people who are clearly living their best life who do have ADHD. But again, it it does depend on that sliding scale. So it's important to understand as well that some people with ADHD do have really severe learning difficulties as well, and they might never be able to live independently. But they're the kind of children where you would get a lot of social care support and a lot of education support to make sure they can live as best that they can. That kind of brings us back to why it is good for parents to be informed, worth just checking out the symptoms or traits, because if you're equipped, if you know what's going on, you're you're better able to, to support your child, because it sounds like an understanding, flexible environment is an important part of, of coping with, with ADHD and ADD. Yeah, and it can be really difficult kind of before you start thinking that way to understand why your child doesn't seem to do what you want them to do or doesn't behave like other children do. And um, I've kind of seen examples where people in a family have tried to be really, really controlling because they think that's the best solution or they've given up completely because nothing works. And actually a bit of understanding as to, to why things aren't working can go a long way. That's great. That's great to know. I'm sure there's a lot of parents out there nodding and understanding. Um, so I, um, we talked about stigma and you talked about not being invited to the party and, you know, children being excluded because because they're different and it, it, it happens. Um, and I think part of the motivation for doing this show was to help parents 
of children who don't have ADHD and ADD to understand differences and and to not further isolate children with ADHD and ADD. So what do you think we can do to to lessen that stigma or to have better understanding for us to teach our children better understanding of children with ADHD and ADD that are in their classes? Yeah, so I don't feel like this is specific to ADHD at all, this question. This is generally about children who are somewhat different than their peers. So you might develop differently in a physical way. You might develop differently in a neurodevelopmental way or an emotional way. Um, And actually, unfortunately, what we often see is that children who are different are the ones who are left out. And over time, that has more and more negative impacts, both on them and their self-esteem, but also it's kind of reinforcing to the other children that it's okay to exclude people, which I don't think it is. Mm. Um, I think schools have a role to play in this because what we see these days is more and more kind of exclusion and suspension from school in response to behaviours that aren't acceptable. And that means that you're taking the child away from that environment where they could be included and you're putting them in a room on their own or you're sending them home. So schools making a real effort to kind of embrace the full range of diversity across their school um, and to find solutions where children are kept in the classroom as much as possible is really important. I think the other thing that can help kind of specific to ADHD is more knowledge and awareness, but also more knowledge that everybody has hyperactivity to some degree. Everybody can be impulsive. And actually, we all have different levels of these things. So doing an activity with a group of children where you kind of rate how you match up against one another on those things makes it more acceptable, more normal, and helps them understand Um, more about the child with ADHD. I do know some parents who have, um, for example, when their child has a diagnosis, they've done a presentation to their class about them and their ADHD, um, and that can go down really well. But on the other side of things, people might not want anyone to know until they've understood and processed it, or maybe they've seen other people being kind of ostracized or bullied because of their ADHD and they don't want that to be them. So you don't want to force people to kind of stand up and and advocate for something if they're worried that they might become a victim, Um, which is why I think it's all the more important to have conversations like we're having today and just understanding that, you know, we are all different, but we can all get along if we have the attitude to do so. Certainly. And if there's there, if there is more awareness that that ADHD and ADD understanding for the condition and um, and what children are struggling with on a day-to-day basis, it's going to empower our kids to be more open-minded and more inclusive and um, in, in their day-to-day activities as well, um, which is, as you say, it's important across the board, not just in relation to ADHD and ADD. Um, so, I'd like to just touch on um, anxiety and depression, because quite often when I talk to parents about ADHD and ADD, it, it, I hear anxiety and depression are part and parcel and also insomnia. Can you talk to us a little bit about those? those are they symptoms? Yeah, so they're not specifically symptoms of ADHD, but they are things that often come alongside it. Um, so children with ADHD 
about two thirds of them or more will also meet criteria for other psychiatric disorders or other mental health problems. So it is really, really common. Um, um, my experience is that kind of as children get into the early teenage years, that's when anxiety and depression tend to kick in. And some of that is because they become more aware of their ADHD symptoms. And then the anxiety is about how do they hide that or how do they mask that so they can get on with others. And the depression might be related to not having any friends and being socially isolated. And schools can become really negative places as well, where you just constantly get negative feedback. So why would you want to get out of bed and go and do stuff? And that can you know, it doesn't cause clinical depression, but it can certainly create symptoms of depression and it can make any kind of pre-existing vulnerability worse. Um, so that's really, really important to recognise and to understand whether or not your child has, you know, mainly has anxiety and has a small amount of ADHD or do they mainly have ADHD and the anxiety is resulting from that understanding that is is crucial to understanding how best to kind of help them and make it better um and now insomnia is a fascinating one uh so it's it's very common to hear that children with adhd don't sleep is what i hear um but sleep maybe three hours a night maybe four or five hours or they stay up extremely late and then won't get up in the morning um, so there's a lot of research going on now looking at sleep and ADHD. Um, there's some particularly good stuff coming out of some Australian work where they've got this whole group of children with ADHD that they've been following for years and they're doing different sleep programs with them. Um, so sleep is really important for children um, and children with ADHD who naturally don't have the same kind of sleep-wake rhythms as other children do will need some support with that. Um, that support can be very much about kind of good bedtime routines and good sleep hygiene. And you can find advice about that online. But it might also take the form of something like melatonin, which is a naturally occurring substance in the body that tells us when it's time to sleep. Um, and sometimes you can now get kind of supplements of melatonin from your GP, which help regulate sleep cycles. But definitely seek expert advice on that. Excellent. Thank you so much. So I'd love to just take a little break at this point and come back to the third part of the show. Um, we've just got a couple more questions for you, Abby, if that's OK. Absolutely. So welcome back to the Parents Show on Radio Verulam 92.6 FM. I'm Lydia L. Corey, and um, I'm really pleased to be joined by Dr. Abby Russell from Exeter um, Medical School. And she's talking to us about ADHD and ADD. So we have really, really picked your brains and asked you every question that we can possibly think of. And to just round up the show, Abby, I'd love to ask you, firstly, what what top tips do you have for a parent of a child I, I, uh, with ADHD and ADD? I know I know the severity can vary, but I, I just top tips. What would you say? So I think the top top tip for me is really make the effort to understand your child. And that means not just understanding what they like and don't like, but what does it mean when they start behaving a certain way? What do they do when they start getting agitated? And is there, you know, look for things that you could maybe spot in advance before you get to a full out meltdown or before they punch someone or before they just 
don't engage with school anymore. So learning to understand your child and what their behavior means in relation to their emotions is really useful in terms of then adapting stuff to support them. Other things that definitely would be great for parents is to kind of arm yourself with knowledge about ADHD. So there's lots of parenting programs specifically for parents of children with ADHD. And there's also training online. So um, there's one on MindEd and there's also a Future Learn course that's all about ADHD. So arm yourself with knowledge. And then the next thing is to get the school on board. And that can be a real challenge, which is why I'm working in schools at the moment. Um, but the better relationship that you can have with the school and the more that you can kind of be honest with them and they can be honest with you, but with a positive focus is really crucial because a lot of the kind of negative effects of ADHD come from the school day and being around other children. So if you can work out how to, how to make school work best, that's really important. Um, and just an example of that, someone who I worked with, they were having massive problems. They couldn't get their child out to school in the morning. And, you know, they were they were a young child, so they could literally take them to school. But when they got there, they would have a full-blown meltdown in full of, front of all the other kids, just at the gate in the morning. And what they worked out was it wasn't that the child didn't want to go to school. It was actually entering school at the same time as everyone else was just way too overwhelming. So they didn't want to go into school at the school entrance time and that's why they wouldn't get out of bed. So what they did was they talked to the school and they made arrangements so that this child went inside 15 minutes before everyone else did and it just gave them enough time in the day to kind of get there before the big school rush and also some time to get themselves in and settled before other people did come in which can be really overstimulating. Um, so it can be stuff that's actually when you say it like that it feels quite minor but for one parent interacting with one school, that can be a bit of a battle. So there are lots of ADHD charities in the UK. Um, the ADHD Foundation in Liverpool is one that I work with, but there are lots of others. And there's also a lot of parent support groups. So get on Facebook or have a Google and really look at what other support can I get from around me. Um, so I work with a great group of parents who are based in Glasgow, for example, and they're fantastic support for one another, as well as kind of helping with the proactive, okay, how do I get the child's school to do this in a way that we're not going to fall out over and they're not just going to think that I'm trying to take the mick. Brilliant. Really excellent, excellent advice for parents. And it, it all ties into the advice you're giving us. Uh, you know, if you've got a good relationship with school, if you're kind of really observing your child for for the for symptoms and, and what works and what doesn't work, then it'll be easier to to manage and find innovative solutions. I mean, it's a very simple solution. Go in 15 minutes early Um but just identifying that and knowing that it makes a difference means, I mean, your child stays in school, which I'm sure is is everybody's everybody's objective. Yeah, and it's very true that 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 is the case. And the other things that do help are really about breaking things down into smaller chunks. Don't give someone ten instructions to work through. Give them one, and when they achieve that, praise them for it and give them the next one. So a lot of it is about kind of taking it back and almost baby steps and then building up so that the child can feel that they're achieving things rather than constantly failing. 
Great. Thank you. I think that's solid advice for everybody, isn't it? Like, I think that feeling of being overwhelmed is is so anxiety inducing, isn't it? So just yeah. one step at a time. And it's definitely, I think, one of the main issues with ADHD is that people don't realise that children aren't aware of these behaviours. They're not doing it intentionally. And they often regret things after the fact. But in the moment, they don't know what they're doing wrong. They don't understand why they're being told off because it's not something they've chosen to do. It's something their brain has decided is a good idea without them kind of getting the chance to intervene with that. So really thinking that it's it's not about changing the child. It's about changing how we, you know, support the child and bring them up in the world is, is crucial. And actually, that's a perfect point to lead on to my last question, which was, you know, what you've just said about the brain deciding it was a great thing to do um, and the child regretting it afterwards. I mean, that's so helpful for me, I, I don't think my children have ADHD or ADD, but I know children who do. And and for me to have that understanding, for other parents to have that understanding will will help us make sense and, and be more understanding of, of the of the what what children with ADHD are, are going through. So have you got any other tips for us or help for us uh, parents and what we can do to help stop the isolation so I think it's something that parents can do and something that everyone can do really is about educating children to be more inclusive and when you're talking about kind of primary school age children there's a lot of what's fair and what's not fair and you teach as a parent as your child grows up you teach them to share you teach them to take turns And then what they can see and what they perceive is that the child that has ADHD is getting all these unfair advantages or they're doing bad things and not having the same consequences as that child. And that's not fair. So really kind of working with children to understand that actually sometimes being fair is treating people differently because that person can't control their behavior. Um, It's so important. And then the other thing is about try and put yourself in the other parent's shoes. Like, what must it be like for them when they know that there's a party going on that their child's not been invited to? Or when they don't go to the play park anymore because that parent stands on their own and nobody, no other parents talk to them? And really make an effort to actually just be nice. Um, you know, you might not get on with every parent of every child. We're all human and some people don't get on. But actually understanding that these parents in particular can be very isolated and thinking about how you could involve them more in the community um, is really crucial. Thank you. I'm go- I'm definitely going to carry away that nugget. Like being fair is treating other children differently is, is just sometimes is 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 a great great lesson to teach my children so abby and um, dr abby russell thank you so much for joining us on the parents show we've learned so much and i'm sure a lot of parents out there be very grateful for your advice